All right, let's, let's go to our Father, shall we? Father, we thank you for life, and we thank you for the fact that uh, you, you are sovereign over our lives. Uh, that keeps us going. That, uh, that helps us handle the things that come at us that are unexpected. And some of us this week have had some of those things. Uh, things that uh, last Wednesday, perhaps when we were here, we uh, had no thought that we would be dealing with a particular situation. Yet here we are a week later, and we are in the middle of it. That's a, that's a surprise to us. It was unforeseen, but it, uh, not a surprise to you. We thank you, Lord, that uh, you oversee our lives. We thank you that uh, every event, every circumstance... And, and we never tire of saying this, and we never tire of reminding ourselves that all of these things are under your control and under your hand. Uh, we're, we're, looking at, uh, we're looking at Joseph, and your invisible hand is all over this guy's life from beginning to end. And he took some real shots, and he took some real blows, and he got blindsided, and he had periods of deep disappointment. And, and he had times in his life when he was stuck and there was no way out and there was, uh, there was no network he could contact. There, there were no calls. There were no markers he could bring in. He was just absolutely uh, closed in and hemmed in. Sometimes that happens to us. Sometimes we are um, astonished by um, the setbacks that occur. But even there, you're in charge. Even there, you're overseeing. Even, even in those times that's which, which are disappointing and hard uh, and, and just baffle us and cause us at times to wonder about your goodness and about your purpose. There are times when we uh, feel abandoned because we see no evidence that you're at work. Lord, these things are written for our instruction. Uh, the biography of Joseph is in here for a reason. It's so that we might be encouraged. It's so that we might be reminded how it is that you work. You don't work in our time schedules. You don't work uh, uh, in, in the ways that we set out and in the ways that we expect. But everything that comes into our lives is uh, purposeful. We never suffer when we suffer we never suffer randomly. We never suffer just to suffer. There's always uh, a purpose behind it. There's always something that you're attempting to do. We pray, Lord, that you'll help us to think, not just feel. When we, when we have these setbacks and disappointments, our, our feelings can overwhelm us, and they can uh, take the place of sound biblical thinking. But we would ask, Lord, that uh, just as we can't function in regular life on our feelings, uh, when, it, when it comes to trying to understand the work that you're doing in our lives, uh, we have to think, and we have to think deeply, and we have to think carefully. So tonight, we'd ask you to help us to think, help us to take the things we're going to see in Joseph's life, and help us, Lord, to apply them to where we are. We're always amazed at how you do that, at how you take the Scripture. And, and you apply it uh, hundreds of different ways to, to the lives of the individuals that are, that, are, that are looking at the same passage but are in different places in life. Uh, 
thankful that your word is powerful. It's a two-edged sword that, uh, that, that it cuts through the nonsense that we hear every day and that it tells us what's true and what's real and what's right. And it tells us the stuff we can build our lives upon. So once again, we ask, Lord Jesus, that you would teach us by your spirit you would encourage us. Some of us need to be rebuked, then rebuke us. Some of us need to be corrected. Correct us. Some of us need to be encouraged tonight, and you'll encourage us. We think of uh, what Paul said to Timothy, that all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching and reproof and correction. Training in righteousness that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. So we pray these things tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week we were in Genesis 39. Tonight we're in Genesis 39. So you might want to begin turning there as we'll focus our attention on Joseph in this particular chapter. It's, it's a chapter of ups and it's a chapter of downs. Or should I say, to be more accurate, it's a chapter of an up and it's a chapter of a down. Um, uh, that's how life is sometimes. When Genesis 39 starts, there's a down. Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt. And Potiphar, an Egyptian officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the bodyguard, brought him, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him down there. Uh, he sold into slavery by his brothers. So this was a down time in his life. This was a, a huge disappointment. This was a he- huge setback. If you've been with us, you know that his brothers hated him. His brothers were jealous of him. So in order to get rid of him, and he's just a 17-year-old kid, they sell him into a life of slavery. Now, normally, if uh, you were sold into slavery back then, at the age of 17, uh, you would probably be dead by the time you were 25. But, but something remarkable happens, and, and even in his setback and even in his uh, deepest disappointment, all his dreams are dashed, his future is, is over and finished and done. Uh, uh, when you're a slave, you're a slave. I mean, you, you have no rights. Uh, there, there's no way of changing your condition. Uh, I mean, that's foreign to us. Uh, if you're African-American, uh, in your recent history, there's been slavery. You, you know what's interesting about slavery? Almost every guy in this room, if you could go back on your family tree, you'd find someone who was a slave. Because when, when the New Testament was written, in the Roman Empire, two-thirds of the population were slaves. Uh, so are you a Dane? Well, at certain times, the, the, the Danes were in slavery. Or, or a Norman, or a Saxon. Uh, you know, that's just, that's just history. No, no matter what your background is, probably if you take it far enough, somebody in your family was a slave. And if they were a slave, they had absolutely no rights. They, they, were, they were lower than trash. They were to be used and thrown away. That's where Joseph was at the age of 17, and that's how he starts chapter 39. But... Potiphar, this official, this guy that runs the secret service for Pharaoh, uh, is the one who purchases him. 
And, and as we said last week, this, this purchase wasn't made by chance. It wasn't made... Uh, See, see, we're always talking about chance, we're always talking about luck, and we're always talking about, uh, in, in biblically speaking, there is no chance and there is no luck. God's providence rules over all. Uh, I've quoted R.C. Sproul a hundred times. Uh, Sproul says that in God's universe, there's not one maverick molecule. God runs everything. God owns everything. The hairs on your head are numbered. Uh, he feeds the sparrows. He takes care of the sparrows. And, and, and you read through the Psalms, and all the creation, all the animals, they look to him for their food. He is the great provider. Uh, the word providence, the root is provide. And, and providence means that not only does God create, but God sustains what he creates. That's big. That's huge. So not only has he created you, but he, he sustains you all the way through life. Um, uh, you were born uh, and, and you exist by his will. You're alive because of his will. Uh, Psalm 139 says, um, what does it say? I just blanked. It says, thine eyes have seen my unformed substance. Think about this. Thine eyes have seen my unformed substance. That's pretty early when you're not formed. You know, they do these sonograms now and you can see the baby inside your wife and all, that's pretty exciting. But there's a point where that baby's a baby, but they're unformed, you see? Uh, it's, it's, it's sperm and egg. Um, God knew you when you were a sperm and an egg. God said to Jeremiah the prophet, before I formed you, I knew you. That's pretty wild, isn't it? How do you know someone before they exist? Well, if you're God, that's not an issue and that's not a problem. So that's why God said, uh, prophesied about this foreign king, Cyrus, and that God would use him for his purposes uh, before Cyrus was ever born. And then when Cyrus showed up on the scene, they showed him, they showed him his name in the scriptures. Isn't that kind of wild? Um, so, you see, God's running everything. He knew you before you were born. He knew you before you existed. As for the, uh, I keep going back to the wrong verse. Uh, thine eyes have seen, thine eyes have seen my unformed substance, and in thy book they were all written, the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. So what that means is, that means this, for the foundations of the world, God determined the moment of your conception. He determined the moment of your birth. He's already determined the moment of your death. Hebrews says it is appointed for a man once to die. It's not suggested, it's appointed. And then comes Judgment. So what that means is you can't die until your time comes. You say, well, how does that work out with, with my choices? And I don't know, because you have choices and I have choices. So I'm not quite sure how that works out. You don't need to know how it works out. It just works out. Do you think, do you think God knows how it works out? Does he tell you to make responsible choices? Does he tell me to make responsible choices? Yeah, then make them. 
Yeah, but what if I don't? Don't waste your time trying to figure it. You'll never get it. I'll never get it. It's just how it is. You've got a will, so make the best choices you can make. Um, God's overseen. There's an invisible hand. He's overseeing everything. And Ephesians tells us that God brings us into existence and he calls us to know himself as believers. And, and isn't it remarkable that you know him? Isn't it remarkable that your eyes have been opened to know Christ? Ephesians 2, verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourself. Not even the faith was of yourself. He gave it to you. Faith is a gift to God. Not as a result of works that any man should boast. So he saved you. First he created you physically. Then at a certain point he saved you and he brought you to himself. And you heard the gospel. And, and you respond to the gospel. You know why you respond to the gospel? Because he pulled you to himself. If, if he just left you to yourself, you never would have responded. You said, oh, I have a free will. Yeah, sort of. But see, the problem with your free will is that it's all bound up. It's bound up with your heart, and your heart's in sin. The heart is desperately sick and wicked. Who can know it? And see, the other problem is you're dead spiritually. You're alive physically, but you're dead spiritually. That's why Ephesians 2.1 says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Uh, most evangelical Christians really don't believe that people are dead spiritually. We don't. See, if you think that anybody can come to Christ anytime they want to, you don't believe Ephesians 2.1. And that's what most evangelicals believe. Uh, and you were dead that word in the Greek, and you look it up, you know what it really means? It means dead. <laughs> dead people. We're talking spiritual. We're talking about spiritual death here. Spiritually dead people don't seek God. Spiritually dead people don't want God. Spiritually dead people aren't interested in God. Their God is themselves. That's their God. So read Psalm 14. There is no one who does good. There is no one who seeks God. God has looked over all the sons of men. There is no one who seeks him. Very interesting. See, so you got a lot of churches today, and their whole thing is seekers. They're, they're all in the seekers. You know, they want to be seeker-sensitive, and that's fine, and it's understandable. Because, you know, you don't want someone to come in and, and feel weird because uh, you've got your little club going on. So you, so you want people that visit. You want them to feel comfortable and that. But the problem with this whole seeker mentality is that everything is tailored to the seeker. And, and see, those seeker guys ought to read the Scripture because they got a problem in the first place because the seekers aren't seeking God. They're seeking themselves. You say, well, wait a minute. How does anyone seek God? Jesus said, no man can come unless the Father, what? Draws him. So he draws everybody. Does he? That's Romans 9. So wait a minute, you're making this real difficult, Steve. You're causing some tension in my life. Well, live with the tension. Go read Romans 9. You work it out. See, you're going to have to think and think deeply. And see, we don't want to think that deeply, and we, we want everything to work out. We want to, 
We want to whittle God down so we can understand him and we're comfortable and we can explain it and we feel good about everything? Huh. Doesn't work that way. There's some hard stuff in Scripture. So, so what we tend to do is we tend not to emphasize it because we don't want anybody to be in tension. And we want everybody to feel real good about what, what's in the Bible. That's not how it works. There's some tough stuff in there. But, but here's how I see it. Here, here's, here's how I see it personally is that uh, I was absolutely dead in my trespasses and sins. And I was absolutely, uh, because I'm dead, I would never choose Christ. I would never seek Christ. I'd never want Christ. So as it goes on, it says in Ephesians 2, he made us alive. That's what he did. You know what Christ does for us to bring us into spiritual life? He gave you physical existence. He made you in your mother's womb. But at a certain point, if you know Christ, it's because he's called you to know him. Um, and you were dead. See, that's why the story of Lazarus is in the Bible. See, every one of us that knows Christ, we're a walking Lazarus. We were dead. And you know what Jesus said? Jesus said, Fred, come forth. Tom, come forth. How did dead guys, let me ask you, how did Lazarus hear that? Have you ever thought about this? Lazarus is really dead. So how did he hear the voice of Jesus? Jesus made him alive so he could hear his voice. That's pretty wild stuff, isn't it? This is called theology. <laughs> because you see, you see, what about his free will? His free will was dead. His free will was locked up in sin. Free will doesn't mean that, you know, you can't choose between a Ford and a Chevy. Um, free will doesn't mean that you can't decide who's going to run the port of Baltimore. Free will means, in terms of choosing God, if left up to yourself. See, we all think we're morally neutral. We're not morally neutral. We're sinful. We're sinners. So God, in his mercy, what does he do? He calls us to know him. And he brings us. And he saves us. For by grace, you've been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves. See, he gave you the ability to respond to him. He made you alive so you could respond. Lazarus, come forth. He heard and he came forth. That's what you did. For by grace you've been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Isn't that an amazing gift? See, when you really get a grip on that, like John Newton did, then you'll write a song like Amazing Grace. Because you're amazed by it. You'll never get over it. You go, why me? It's just grace. It's not works. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves is the gift of God, not as a result of works that any man should boast. For. For. See, he doesn't just save us to save us. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, before we were ever born, that we might walk in them. So what that means is, is that for every guy in this room, God has a plan for your life. And when it says, you are his workmanship, prepared, um, I gotta get the flow of that verse. 
that's not exactly how I memorized it, so it's not helping me. <laughs> but I thank you for the input. I mean, you're correct. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for what? Good works. Not good works that save us. We're already saved. He saves us, and then he equips us for good works. Catch this. Which God prepared beforehand, before you were ever born, that you might walk in them. And here's the deal with God. He's got good, he, see, he's got works for you to do. He's got works for me to do. He's got works for you to do. And it's all different. And he's governing the whole world. And he assigns us to our post. And he gives us different gifts and abilities. And he's, see, he's got works he prepared for you before you were ever born that you might walk in them and, and, and catch this. You can't die until you do them. So how can that be? Because he runs everything. That's how. That's pretty wild. And a lot of times, a lot of times, see, when we're down, we think we're done. When we're down and defeated and our plans have been destroyed and our dreams have been taken away, we think we're done. But you're not done because the sovereign hand of God is sovereign and rules everything that comes into your life including your downtimes. You say, well, yeah, but I'm in that because I screwed up. He's even sovereign over that. Is he not? He's not sovereign over that. <laughs> sure he is. He's sovereign over everything. So even, even when we foul up, even when we sin, that, that's one of the things I'm so grateful for about the Lord. He's sovereign over sin. Sin does not stop the plan of God. It doesn't. It won't. So here's Joseph. You say, what does that have to do with Joseph? It has everything to do with Joseph. It has everything to do with you and me. His brothers sell him into slavery. There he's the recipient of great sin. All his hopes, dreams are dashed. Does that mean he's out of the will of God? He's right smack in the middle of the will of God. Well, they took advantage of him, and they hurt him, and they betrayed him. Does that ever happen to you? You're right smack in the middle of the will of God. Because God is not only sovereign over your life, but he's sovereign over those that interact with your life. He's got to work for us to do. But here's the deal. He's got to get us ready to do the work. Martin Lloyd-Jones, one of my favorite all-time preachers, said this on more than one occasion. He said, it is tragic when a person succeeds before they are ready for it. One more time. It is tragic when a person succeeds before they are ready for it. Now, when you're in your 20s, you don't understand that. Because when you're in your 20s and your 30s, you're trying to succeed and you're trying to climb the ladder. And you got a lot of juice and you got a lot of energy and you're getting started in life and you come out of school or whatever it is you've been doing and, hey, you're starting at the bottom and you want to wake your way to the top and you want to climb the ladder and you want to be successful. And, and as men, we get our, our self-worth from what we do. And so we work really hard at our, our careers and our jobs and all that. Why? Because we want to succeed. We want to achieve. That, that, that's a good thing, the desire to... Uh, 
to achieve and work hard, it's a very good thing. God commends you for that. Uh, if you're a sluggard and you can't get out of bed and you stay at home and watch soap operas all day, he doesn't commend you. That's not a good thing. If a man doesn't work, he doesn't eat. What do you think about that? That's what God says. Now, if a man can't work, or if a woman can't work, we help them out. We take care of them. If someone's debilitated, that's, that's where the church comes in. That's where we render assistance. This is true and undefiled religions, ministering to widows and orphans, James said. Someone's debilitated, someone can't do what they would normally do. If they were physically able, they'd do it, but they can't do it. So what do we do? We come along and we minister to them. And we help them for as long as we need to help them. And as we're giving them a cup of water, we're, we're giving it to Jesus, is what we're doing. But we're to work. We're to desire to achieve. But when we're young, we want it then we want it fast, and we don't want any interruptions, and we want things to move along nicely. At a fast clip, just as the freeway did on your way here tonight. That was a joke. It's tragic when a person succeeds before they are ready for it. Why? Because they don't have what it takes to handle the success. They're not mature enough. They're not wise enough. Uh, they're vulnerable. Why is that? Because they haven't been tested. When I, uh, I was pastoring a church when I was 27 years old. That is really a scary thought now. Uh, but I was. And I remember uh, in my first year of pastoring, I was pastoring a church that was an offshoot of Peninsula Bible Church out in California. And it was only about 30 minutes away uh, from Peninsula Bible Church, and Ray Stedman was the pastor there. Uh, some of you guys have heard uh, Chuck talk about Ray Stedman. Ray's with the Lord now, but Ray was a, a great Bible teacher. Uh, he was a great mentor. In fact, Chuck, when Chuck was at Dallas Seminary, Chuck went out and uh, did an internship under Ray. He was the first intern ever at Peninsula Bible Church. And uh, Ray was just a guy with a lot of wisdom and just, just, a, he, just a great guy. You just wanted to hang around him. And so I'm 27, and so I'd, 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 get with, uh, I'd get with Ray and have lunch with him, you know, I don't know, every six months or something. So we're having lunch one day at the Elks Club in Palo Alto. And I'm talking to him, and you know, and and you know, Ray, Ray wrote some books, and he wrote a book called Body Life about what was going on in their ministry, and all these Stanford students coming. It's a pretty exciting time. And I was talking to him about writing, and I, I said, you know, Ray, I've, I've always loved to write. He goes, Steve, you ought to write. I said, really? He goes, oh yeah. He said, you've always loved to write. I said, oh yeah. I mean, I started the newspaper in fourth grade in my class. I mean, I just loved to write. He said, well, that's, that's a gift from God. You ought to write. And I, I'm thinking, this is pretty neat. 
He said, I can see you writing. And I said, well, gosh. Well, thanks, Ray. He said, let me give you a tip. And I said, yeah. He said, don't write till you're 40. <laughs> I'll never forget that. I said, 40? I was 27. I'm thinking in my mind, that's 13 years away. Don't write till you're 40. I mean, I couldn't believe what I was hearing. It was like he was encouraging me, and now he was discouraging me. He said, Steve, don't write till you're 40. And I said, 40? He goes, 40. Yeah. And then he moved on to something else. First book I did, Point Man, came out when I was 40. And I think in the first page, I told that story, what Ray told me to say. Wait till you're 40. Well, what Ray was saying, I mean, he was very gracious. He didn't say it. He goes, Steve, you're 27. You're an idiot. <laughs> you're dangerous. We can't put you in print. You haven't been beat up. You haven't been hurt. You haven't been kicked around. You haven't been fired from a church. What do you know? <laughs> All that needs to happen to you. He didn't say it. He didn't say it. I wouldn't have gotten it. Interesting. That's how it worked out. But see, I didn't understand it because, see, I wanted to succeed in writing right then. I wasn't ready for it. I couldn't have handled it if it came along. So here's Joseph. Sold into slavery. He's down. Potiphar buys him, and the hand of God is on Joseph. He works hard, he's faithful, and he begins to rise up through the ranks. And before you know it, what happens is, is that he is trusted by Potiphar. He has proven himself, and Potiphar has given him responsibility for everything that he owns. If you look at verse 6 of 39, so Potiphar, when it says he, left everything he owned in Joseph's charge, and with him there he did not concern himself with anything except the food which he ate. Five explains it even more. It came about from that time he made him overseer in his house and over all that he owned. The Lord blessed the Egyptian's house on account of Joseph. Thus the Lord's blessing was upon all that he owned in the house and in the field because of Joseph. So Joseph is running the whole deal. Joseph is somewhere in his 20s here. He's in his mid-20s. He should have been dead. But the goodness of God, he, he's been promoted. He's running the whole show. He's signing checks for the guy. He's got a company chariot. He's probably got a nice condo. I mean, he, he can't believe his good fortune. The hand of God is upon him. And he knows where it comes from, and he's grateful to God. Um, he was down, now he's up. But he's about to go down again. Now, why would God allow that to happen? Why would God permit that to happen? Why would God plan for that to happen? He's had success yeah, but see, God has something in mind for him 
that's going to take some more training. God has something in mind for him that's going to take some more muscle. It's going to take some more development. It's going to take some more stuff. And he doesn't, have, doesn't quite have it yet. If God just left him up, he wouldn't be qualified to do the work that God ultimately had in mind for him to do. So he's going to have to go down again. And see all these ups and downs that he's going to go through? These are testings. Testings. Flip over to Psalm 105. So are you in a down period? You kind of surprised where you are? Are, are, are you astonished and shocked? This was not in your plan. You, you are stunned by where you are. Never ever thought you would be in this position. Never, you never conceived of where you find yourself right now. Well, how did you get there? You say, well, you don't know what somebody did to me. Well, that, that may be. Joseph's brothers did some bad things to him. But God's sovereign over that. God's sovereign over everything. So why are you in the place where you are? Well, quite frankly, because the Lord has afflicted you. Thomas Watson used to say, whatever the affliction, it is the Lord who sends it. What do you think of that? That's pretty heavy. It, it adds up with what Job says. Job was afflicted. In about 45 minutes, he got three FedExes. One, two, three. Bad news, bad news, bad news, bad news. He tears his clothes. He says, the Lord gives and Satan takes away. He said, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. If you look at Psalm 105 and you notice verse 16, it says, and he called for a famine upon the land and broke the whole staff of bread. He sent a man before them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. They afflicted his feet with fetters. He himself was laid in irons. Now, Genesis doesn't tell us this, but it happened to Joseph. Catch this. Until the time that his word came to pass, the word of the Lord tested him. These things come to us for a reason. The good times and the bad times, they come to us for a reason. We like the good times, but we need the bad times. The bad times get us ready. The bad times prepare us. The bad times are the times where God does the deep work. Uh, the hard times are the times when God tests us. Because you see, God has good works for you to walk in. He has works that he's going to do in your life. But you see, if he's going to trust you with that work, he's got to be able to trust you. So he's going to test you. Things are going great for Joseph. I mean, he is cruising. Absolutely cruising in Genesis 39, verse 6. 
things are going to change in verse 7. He's about to be tested. Actually, we got to pick up the end of 6 because it says, Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. Joseph was a guy in his uh, 20s. Uh, you know, he worked out. He did cardio three days, did weights three days. Run a, you know, 10K here and there. I mean, he, he was handsome in form and appearance. He's a good-looking young guy in his 20s. Now, here you go, verse 7. Joseph doesn't know it, but in the midst of this uptime, the company chariot and the condo, and he's running the whole show. He's about to get tested. First test is in verse 7. God is going to test his purity. It came about after these events. What events? That he'd been promoted to run Potiphar's house. It came about after these events that his master's wife, Potiphar's wife, we don't know her name, I like to call her Predator. <laughs> it came about after these events that his master's wife, catch this, looked with desire at Joseph. And she said, lie with me. Take me to bed. Let's have some fun. At the test. Not his wife. She doesn't belong to him. He's a young guy, uh, physically in shape, got a strong sexual drive. That's how God makes men. And that sexual drive, it's working overtime in those teen years and in your 20 years. You know? You're, you're, you're I mean, you talk about a drive, right? I mean, it's dangerous. It, it, it's a sexual drive. It's, it's not a, see, it, it, it's, it's a sexual, it's a sexual drive. <laughs> I mean, it's strong, isn't it? It, it, can, it can control you, is what it can do. And here's this young guy, Joseph, and uh, here's this gal. She's some young Egyptian rich chick. You say, how do you know she's young? I don't know that. But I bet you because of who she was married to, she had all this affluence and she basically spent all day, if she wasn't young, trying to make herself look young. Uh, she was a pampered, affluent, self-indulgent reprobate who had no morals and quite frankly was a high-class slut. And she sees Joseph. And she says, hey, go to bed with me. Let's have sexual intercourse. Let's mess around. You ever listen to the radio? And, you know, just normal stuff. And all of a sudden, you know, there's this strange sound come on. Kind of, kind of irritating, kind of a grating. You know, it just bothers you. And some guy will come on and say, this is a test. I mean, I just turned the station immediately. I'm not going to sit there and listen to that for three minutes. Um, that happens sometimes in the Christian life. Uh, uh, uh. 
this is a test. That's what you got right here in verse 7. Come lie with me. What's going to be tested is purity. All right? But see, when your purity is tested, something else is going to be tested. And that's in the next verse. You see, God's going to test his person. His person. Let's find out who Joseph really is. I've blessed him. I've been good to him. But let's... And see, when we talk about a person, what are we talking about? We're talking about your heart. The Bible's always talking about the heart. You notice that? Always talking about it. Man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. What is your heart? Your heart is your... It's, a, it, it's, it's, it's you. It includes your mind. It includes your, uh, uh, your emotions. It includes your, your passions. It includes your, your will. Uh, it, it's, that, it, it's, it's you. It's the engine of your life. It's what makes you tick. Does your wife ever say to you, tell me what you're really thinking? What, what is she after? She wants to know what's in your heart. That's what she wants to know. See, and God's always looking at the heart. The heart is the issue. The heart is central to Christianity. Uh, God's going to test his person, and when God tests your person, God's testing your heart. God's testing your character. What's in there? What are you made of? What do you believe? What's really important to you? Seven is the test of purity. It came about after these events that his master's wife looked at him with desire, and she said, lie with me. Now, here's who Joseph is, verse 8. But he refused. That's it. That tells you his heart. That tells you who he was. It's been said that uh, reputation is what people think you are. Character is what you are when no one else is around. He refused. He was tested, and here is his response to the test. I refuse to lie with you. Um, and he explains. See, he explains what's in his heart. He explains what he really believes. He explains what really makes him tick, you see. Uh, he wasn't trying to spin anybody. He wasn't trying to get out of a... Uh, he hadn't been caught. He, he, he was just explaining his behavior and why it was that he had to refuse. He said to her, to this young, rich, affluent, Botoxed, Egyptian rich chick, Behold, with me here, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house. And he has put all that he owns in my charge. But then he says in verse 9, There is no one greater in this house than I, and he has withheld nothing from me except you, because you are his wife. How then could I do this great evil and sin against God? Now, there's actually another test in, in verse 9. 
It's the test of his position. Of his position. Let me show you what I mean here. He, he understands his position. Where did he get his position? We saw last week that promotion comes not from the east or from the west, but from God, who raises up one and sits down. That's Psalm 75. God was the one who put him in that position. He was acutely aware of his position because he says in, in, in verse 9, talking to this chick, he says, there is no one greater in this house than I. That was his position. The unsaid thing is he knew he got that position by the goodness of God. Then he says this, he has withheld nothing from me except you. Speaking of Potiphar, speaking of her husband, he knew he was, he was a servant to Potiphar. He was a servant to her husband. He understood his position. And then he says, because you are his wife. He understood her position. How then could I do this great evil and sin against Potiphar? Not what he says. How then could I do this great evil and sin against God? Ultimately, it's God who he would be sinning against, the one who ministered to him and the one who gave him the position. I like this guy. Young guy in his 20s. He hasn't had an easy life. He's had a lot of disappointment. He's had a lot of setbacks. He's taken a lot of shots. But you know what? He's got some stuff to him. He, he, he's... Uh, He's got some substance. He has thought deeply about who he is and what he believes. Now, you go to verse 10, you're going to get another test. Because um, this chick isn't going away. That's the thing about tests. Some guys, sometimes God puts us in positions, and, and we want out of the position because we don't like what's happening. We want it to be over. But you know what? It's not, hey, it's not going away. Be, because... God's going to test your persistence, which is precisely what's happening in verse 10. As she spoke to Joseph day after day. This wasn't a one-time event. This didn't happen at the office party when, when she had too much to drink. He saw her every day, and every day she is trying to put the moves on this sucker. As she spoke to Joseph day after day, he did not listen to her to lie beside her or be with her. He didn't say, well, gosh, let's just have lunch. He didn't do that. Not only would he not sleep with her, he wouldn't be with her. Now, there's a, there's a great principle. Sometimes, as men... Uh, because we work with women and we associate with, sometimes as men, we're attracted to someone that we work with because they're attractive. They have attractive personalities. They're, they're, they're just, a sharp, just a sharp gal. And they're fun to be with and they're, you enjoy their company. And that happens. Nothing going on. They're just very attractive. If someone like that... See, it's someone like that that you really got to be careful of because you enjoy their company. You enjoy being with them. 
because you see, before a guy ever falls sexually with a woman, he first falls emotionally. That's what happens. So you have to be careful of spending time with women that you're not married to. Especially if you like them. Especially if you're attracted to them. And, and what happens is, is that sometimes things aren't, it's not a good chapter in marriage and maybe you and your wife aren't communicating but there's some gal at work you're working with and you're working on a project together and I mean legitimately you're working together and other people are there but sometimes opportunities will come up where you could well you want to grab a bite of lunch you want to get some coffee that's where you got to be careful because see it's in those settings that you're not working and the purpose doesn't work, but it's in those settings you would get to know them better and you'd have conversation with them and, and there's just all kinds of potential for trouble. You say, Steve, that really kind of sounds extreme to me. Oh, you're very astute. <laughs> Remember what Jesus said? Jesus said, if your hand offends you, put it in a cast. Remember that verse? <laughs> Jesus said, if your eye offends you, Put on sunglasses. That's not what he said. He said, if your hand offends you, what do you do? Cut it off. Now he's using hyperbole. If your eye offends you, what do you do? Pluck it out. He's using hyperbole. He's going to an extreme to make a point. And the context is sexual temptation. The co- what he's saying is, is that sometimes extreme measures are called for that anybody else would say, oh, it's no big deal. Joseph, not only would he not lie with her, that's a big deal. We would agree with that. But he wouldn't be with her. He wouldn't go to Starbucks with her. He wouldn't sit down with her. He he didn't want anything to do with her. Somewhere I read, flee immorality. I read that somewhere. Don't hang around and check it out. Don't see how close you can get to it. Flee. Run. This chick wasn't going away. Think about this. This was day after day after day. And he says no. And I'll tell you something. Rich, affluent, Botoxed, nipped and tucked chicks don't like being turned away especially when you work for their husband. They don't like that at all. Now, the whole section in 11 to 18, uh, you, you know this story. I think there's more to it than what we read. You say, how do you know that? I'm kind of surmising. But I think all of 11 through 18 is tied up to 10. That day after day, she's saying, sleep with me, and not only will he not do it, he won't even be with her. That's a slap in the face to her. Let's read 11. Now, it happened one day that he went into the house to do his work. Now, remember, every day she's hitting on him. It happened one day that he went in the house to do his work, and none of the men in the household was there inside. She caught him by his garment saying, lie with me. 
And he left his garment in her hand and fled, and fled outside. He went outside. He, once again, he fled immorality. One commentator said, uh, you see it says he left his garment in her hand? One commentator said, this is the second time Joseph lost his coat. <laughs> and he's right. This chick tried to grab him, and he literally ran out of his, out of his coat, out of his tunic. He left his garment in her hand and fled and went outside. See, this is what was in this guy's heart. When she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled outside, she called to the men of her household and said to them, See, he has brought in, her, meaning her husband, has brought in a Hebrew, Joseph, to, make, uh, to us to make sport of us. He came in to me to lie with me. Was that true? No. She lied. And I screamed. Was that true? No. Do you think she'd thought about this in advance? I do. When he heard that I raised my voice and screamed, he left his garment beside me and fled and went outside. Now catch this. So she left his garment beside her until his master came home. This chick was trouble. This was premeditated. Then she spoke to him with these words, meaning her husband. The Hebrew slave whom you brought to us came in to me to make sport of me. I raised my voice and screamed. He left his garment beside me and fled outside. I don't think this all just happened in a moment. I think this was planned. She was hitting on him every day. One day he comes in, nobody's there. She makes the move. He leaves. She's holding it. Uh, here's what she did. Here's what she did to Joseph. She lied about Joseph. Um, basically, what she did, she committed perjury. And you know, I'll tell you what else I think she did. I think she committed blackmail. The text doesn't say this, but if you've done enough counseling, you can kind of put the pieces together here. I think from verse 10, as she spoke to Joseph day after day and he didn't listen to her to lie beside her or be with her, you know what I think? I think she threatened him. That's what I think. I can't prove it. It's just my opinion. I think she said, hey, you know what, Joseph? You got a pretty good thing going here. You could lose it like that. But I'll tell you something. If you lie with me, I'll make sure you're taken care of. But if you don't, do you know what I'm going to do? Can you imagine this happening? Do we know that it happened for sure? No, but I can sure see it happening. Because you see, quite frankly, I, you have a very, very nice position here that with just a word from me, you could lose like that. See, to me, this is another testing of Joseph. What you've got here is that I think in verses 11 through 18, God tested his place of confidence. Where's your confidence, Joseph? Where's your confidence? Uh, I think it's very possible that she blackmailed him. I think it's very possible she told him in advance what she was going to do. And then finally, she got so ticked off by his rejection, she just flat out did it. She blackmailed the guy, and I'll tell you what else she did. She perjured herself. Perjure is lying under oath. I can imagine when she, Potiphar came home, he couldn't believe it. He knew Joseph. He knew his character. He couldn't believe it. And I can imagine her saying, I swear to you this happened. I swear to you this happened. That's perjury. 
Perjury is lying under oath. Thomas Watson, that old great Puritan, you know what he said? He said, perjury, a perjurer is the devil's excrement. I like that guy. Some of you guys are looking for a dictionary. A perjurer is, is, is the devil's excrement. It doesn't get any worse. It doesn't get any lower. She perjured herself. And what does Psalms tell us about Joseph? He was put in irons. Had he done anything wrong? Uh-uh. Flip over to 2 Timothy 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2. We'll note verse 20. Down to verse 22. Actually, we'll pick up 19. Nevertheless, the firm foundation of God stands, having this seal. The Lord knows those who are his. Did you know Joseph was his? When Joseph was in the dungeon in chains, cuffed up, God knew that Joseph's mine. I got his whole heart. Now in a large house, there are not only gold and silver vessels, but also vessels of wood and of earthenware, and some, catch this, and some to honor and some to dishonor. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from these things. He will be a vessel for honor, sanctified, useful to the master, prepared, catch this, for every good work. Now flee from youthful lust and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. That's what happened in Joseph's life. God was testing him. Testing him to find out what? If he'd flee from youthful lusts, uh, testing to see if he would cleanse himself from these things, if he would separate himself. And you see, when God tests us, and when we pass the test, we're ready for the work. thing about the test of the Lord is that you take them until you pass them. Some of these tests, you don't want to go to summer school on. You want to pass them. The Bible says the eyes of the Lord are in every place. Um, kind of frustrated with where you are? God knows where you are. He's just looking for your heart. He's getting you ready. So Lord, we thank you for this word from Joseph. As we see the process that you take us through to get us ready to be your men. Encourage us with these words we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.